Due to a technical difficulty, we uh, lost this week's message. Uh, we weren't able to post it, so I'm going to kind of re-record things here the best I can and, and, and make it available for those who weren't able to be here on Sunday to hear the second message in our Return of the King series. Our scripture reading was found in Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 27. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you, you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Now, as I said, we're in the second part of a series called Return of the King. This is a series about end times. And some of you may wonder, why end times? Why are we doing a sermon series on end times when that's a topic that so many Christians disagree on? And yet, uh, so you know, the big thing is, Jesus is coming. Why don't we just focus on that and be done with it? And the thing that I found as we did a, a course on this about eight weeks or so in December and January of this past winter the thing I discovered was that there are several truths that I believe many Christians in America have missed the biblical truth on. And in so doing, these particular, at least these three that we're covering over the, over these, over the course of this series, these three affect what we're doing now. And so they matter a lot. And that's why we've been saying through this series, what's next matters now. And we get this in our lives you know, we gave some examples last week. This week I'd mention even the fact that what may happen next affects our now. I mean, if, if you hear a rumor that you may be laid off at your, at your job, 
well, you may begin looking for a job, a new job now, right? What's next, even just the possibility of what's next affects your now. That's the reason a lot of people go out and they buy life insurance policies or disability insurance policies. Uh, you know, they say it's a lot more likely that you're going to be disabled at some point than that you'll die. And so a lot of people are buying disability insurance, life insurance, because they know it's possible. There's a decent chance that one of those things may happen to them and they want their family to be provided for. And so what's next or what may be next affects their now. And so surely what's next with, when it comes to kingdom things and our faith must affect what we're doing now. And so we're going to look now at the second part, hastening the judgment. And I hope that that title is a little bit off-putting to you. Why in the world... Would we want to hasten the judgment? Isn't that something we would want to hold off as long as possible? Isn't that something we dread and want to keep at arm's length? Who would want to be judged? Much less speed, it's coming, and yet that is the subject of our message today. And I think we'll find that it's the truth of the New Testament. It's the truth that Jesus and his apostles taught. It's the attitude that Christians throughout generations have held to. Now, I, when I was in college, when I was in college, we used to like to throw a football around. Anybody, anybody like to do that when you were in college? Uh, we only had guys raise their hand on Sunday morning. Uh, we, none of the ladies, apparently, were throwing footballs around in college. Uh, but anyway... We, uh, we'd throw the football around, and, and one day I was throwing the football around with my, my buddies, and, and we were in an apartment complex parking lot. It's probably not the best place to be throwing a football around, but when you're in college, you're dumb, so it's all good. And, uh, and we were throwing it back and forth, and oh, I've got this pinky finger that likes to get in the way of footballs. It's done that a couple of times to me, and this particular day was a big one. It, the football somehow caught it with my pinky, apparently. And, and it, at the knuckle, it popped out of joint, or broke something, and it slid down, you know, past the knuckle. It, it was gruesome. It was ugly. It, you know, these, these friends, these so-called friends of mine who were like closer than a brother, we're still friends today, actually, believe it or not, despite this occasion. None of them would even help me out. I said, would one of you guys pop this back into place? They were like, we ain't touching that thing. They were grossed out by it. And, and what I should have done is gone to the doctor. And if I had gone to the doctor, maybe he could have put it back in such a way that it wouldn't still be crooked to this day. And maybe it wouldn't have hurt for a solid year. But, but I, I didn't. And I just popped it back into place myself and put some ice on it and called it good. And, but let me tell you what I did not do. What I did not do is just leave it there. Oh, well, you know, we'll just live with it like this. Because when something is out of joint, when something is out of place, nobody is content to just leave it there, to just let it lie. No, you've never heard of someone who dislocated their shoulder and was just like, well, okay, I'll just live with it like this now. I mean, give me a break. No. No. It has to be set right, one way or another. 
No one would be content to live with it in that condition. And I want to suggest to you today, friends, that our world is a broken world. It is out of joint. It is not right. And we see this every day. Just turn on the news and you'll see that it is broken and out of joint. And, and we can't, as Christians, as humans for that matter, we can't be satisfied with the condition of things in our world. We can't just let it lie. Just as you can't do that with uh, something that's out of joint or broken on your body. You know, some examples. And lately, we've got the, the flooding that they've had down in South Louisiana, right? It's tragic. It's tough news. We've got uh, racial tension in our streets. We've got attacks on our law enforcement officers. We've got, uh, you know, we see the news overseas of, of refugees and, and just huge numbers just lined up in, in crowds just pouring into Europe and places in numbers that their infrastructure can't even handle. It's unbelievable. But we don't have to go clear around the world to see the brokenness of our world. Many of you here in this area, you, you heard the story of Kelly Longoria, married recently to Shane Longoria, a youth pastor in a nearby community of Winsboro. Kelly was from Monroe and just in the last year or so got married and, and moved down to Winsboro. Well, she was filling up her gas tank in Winsboro just a month or so ago when she was abducted at gunpoint. They drove off and, and out somewhere off the beaten path, shot her in the head, left her to die. She was discovered, rushed to medical care. The doctors thought her death would be imminent. After they stopped, the, uh, were able to keep that from happening, the swelling on her brain was of the greatest concern. They didn't know or believe that she would survive, much less recover. But yet, look at where she is today. The reports have come in that she's walking, she's talking, she's making tremendous recovery beyond what they had dreamed. And yet, this young couple, just starting off on their life together, it's never going to be quite the same. Because we live in a broken world. What do you do when you're confronted with the brokenness of our world? What do you do with that? You know, some of us, we try to just tune it out. We turn off the news. We don't want to hear about it. We don't want to see it. We don't want to think about it. But the thing is, when the, when the news is bad enough, it pervades our culture to a point where you can't escape it anymore. It's all that's on TV. It's all that's on social media. It's all that your friends are talking about. And so what do you do when you're confronted with that kind of bad news? Some of us doubtless lash out in anger, either at a friend or on social media. Some of us probably curl up in a ball and we sulk. 
We all have different ways that we react to bad news. But I want to suggest to you today that the correct reaction is this. And it's not going to seem logical at first. We're going to talk about it. That bad news for Christians should lead us to long for judgment. And that if we long for judgment, if we want it to come sooner than later, we should tell someone about Jesus. Let me say this one more time because it doesn't at first sight seem to make a lot of sense. But the deal is, if, when we hear bad news, it should make us long for judgment. And, and if we long for judgment, then we should tell someone about Jesus. So let's look at scripture today in search of making, helping that to make a little more sense. And, and we talked about last week that, you know, if you ask the average person, where do you go in scripture to, uh, to find out about end times and the return of our king? Well, that nine out of ten people would tell you, well, you go to the last book in the Bible, right? You go to Revelation. It's the last book in the Bible. It's the one that talks about the last things. And so that's where you go if you want to learn about end times. Um, the thing about Revelation is, first of all, it's not the only place that you can go. Jesus talked about end times. His apostles talked about end times and letters that they wrote to the churches. And so the Re book of Revelation, while it does deal with end things to a degree, does not, is not by any means the only place that you can find information about that. And it is certainly not the clearest place. And we talked about how it falls into a, a genre of literature called apocalypticism. <laughs> it's an apocalyptic book. And apocalyptic literature in the Jewish, ancient Jewish culture was a, a type of literature that used a lot of symbolism, used a lot of, uh, boy, just astounding cosmic terminology and imagery. And they used a lot of numbers as symbols. And it was, it's really very interesting, but what it's not meant to be is super clear on all points. And in fact, we, we look at some of the Old Testament apocalypticism and we see that people, even in Jesus' day, didn't have it all figured out yet. They weren't all, they, there was not just a general consensus about, ooh, okay, we know exactly what the Messiah is going to do. We know exactly how this is going to go down. We know how the end of the world is going to play out. You know, they did not have a clear perception of that. There was disagreement about it even. And if the ancient Jews had disagreement and a lack of consensus about their own apocalyptic literature, then you can bet that we, 2,000 years later, sitting here in Louisiana, will also not be clear or have consensus on apocalyptic literature in our Bibles. That doesn't mean it's not true. That doesn't mean it doesn't have a place. It doesn't mean that, there, that we shouldn't study it or delve into it. It's just maybe a different kind of truth or a different way of presenting truth than what we're used to in our culture where we prefer just to Google it, you know? We Google it if it's on Wikipedia or in some kind of encyclopedia or dictionary. We want it black and white spelled out in clear terms. And other cultures of the world and throughout history just didn't deal with literature that way. That was not the only or even the best way to present truth. I mean, just look at the way Jesus talk, uh, taught. He didn't just spell it out all the time, did he? He taught in parables. 
a lot. He would tell stories. He had a lot of little one-liners and things. And so we're dealing with something different. And when we talk about end times, whenever you hear someone that, that says, you know, hey, I've got the whole book of Revelation figured out, you know, think again, mister, because when ain't none of us got it completely figured out, even they didn't have it completely figured out, the early church. So, so how much less are we? So what we want to do, our, kind of our motto throughout this series, is that we want to take what's clearest in Scripture and use that to help us filter and understand what is not clearest. And so we're going to try to start with the things that are clearest. And so, in fact, we're going to look at Revelation very little throughout this series. In fact, we're going to look more at letters from the apostles that are a little more clear. And today's example is one of them, Romans. It was a letter from the Apostle Paul written to the church in Rome. And, and this talk about end times that we encounter today in Romans chapter 8 seems kind of out of place because this whole time Paul's been ta- dealing with the issue of sin. He's been talking about how we've been slaves to sin, which leads to fear, and, and how we need to break out of that by the help of the Holy Spirit to lead a, a new life and put to death our old life. And that our hope then is adoption into God's family, to be co-heirs with Christ, to share in his glory. And then all of a sudden, Paul's off to the races, off on a tangent, it seems, talking about Christ's return, talking about end times. And we're thinking, where did, where, where did this come from? But I want to suggest to you that it was not a tangent, but really the thing that all the rest hinges on. See, everything hinges on our hope in Christ. And our hope in Christ has a lot to do with his return. And so let's just kind of pick up with some of the high points of what we read just a few moments ago. Romans chapter 8 verse 19. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Now, when are the sons of God going to be revealed? When is that moment in time when everyone will know who is who? You're a child of God. You are not a child of God. When is that determined? Jesus told kind of one of those parable type stories in Matthew 25 when he talks about how the king will return. And when the king returns, he'll gather everyone together and he's going to separate what Jesus called the sheep off to his right hand and the goats off to his left hand. And to those on his right hand, he will say, well done, you know, you served me well. Now come and join me in my glory, gain your inheritance. And to those on his left, you did not serve me. I do not know you, and they're cast into the place where the flames never die. The moment when the children of God are revealed is when Christ returns, not only as king, but as judge. And all is laid bare before him. And in that day, we're told by Jesus and by his apostles, 
that who is who will be revealed, that the sons of God will be revealed. And so we know then that Paul is talking about that last day, that return of Christ. He goes on, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. See, what's amazing is, and I've got to be careful here because I don't want to get too much into next week's sermon on the hope that we need to reclaim as Christians. But Paul here is clearly saying that it's not just us that have a hope in Christ's return, but it's all of creation that has a hope in Christ's return. That when Christ returns to reveal who is who, to sit as judge, the whole world is going to be set right. Not just a part of it. Not just us. But everything, all creation, he goes on, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruit of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies, the redemption of our bodies when they're made right again. And all of creation is groaning and waiting with us and we're groaning and waiting. Friends, this is the narrative in Scripture that we are to eagerly await and groaning expectation for Christ's return for that day of judgment. And to the degree that we have dreaded it, to the degree that we have feared it, we have missed the mark. We have missed the point. We clearly have had the wrong view of judgment. If you are a Christian here today and you stand in dread of the day when your life will be laid bare before Jesus, and you sit in fear of that day, in a paralyzing fear of that day, and you wish it would never come rather than longing for its coming, then friend, I need to tell you that that is proof that you have the wrong idea about judgment. Because our world is broken. And we are broken. And we desperately need our Savior to come and set things right again. Because that's what a good judge does, right? I mean, just like a good doctor who comes in and sets the bone right. Who sets the joint back in place so that healing, yes, it can be painful. But how else can healing ever take place? And similarly, when a good judge comes into a situation in a community where an evil or an injustice has been committed and there's tension, a palpable tension in the community. Well, a good judge comes in and he, and he sets things right. He serves justice. And in so doing, the tension is relieved and healing can begin to take place in that community. So that's why everywhere that you look in scripture where it talks about God's judgment it's so consistently seen as a positive thing let's turn in your books to in your bibles to psalm 98 you can just turn to the middle 
of your Bible, and uh, you should be somewhere right around Psalms. If you're over at Proverbs or Ecclesiastes, just flip back to the left a little bit. We're looking for Psalm 98, and we're going to read from Psalm 98, and, and what I want you to notice as we read is you're going to start hearing all this about, you know, shout to the Lord, praise the Lord, praise Him with this, praise Him with that. Everybody praise him, like all creation praise him. And, and I want you to listen for why. It says, sing to the Lord a new song, for he's done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He's remembered his love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the Lord have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Why are we praising God? Why are we shouting for joy? Why are, we, why are the rivers clapping their hands and the mountains singing? Because all creation groans along with us in eager expectation for the day that our King returns to set things right. Not only do we long for it, but we actually speed its coming. In 2 Peter chapter 3, we read, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And, and this, again, is some of that apocalyptic description that sometimes the apostles and Jesus threw into their descriptions. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Listen to what he says. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Speed its coming. Here's the deal about judgment. Our world does need it. So we should speed it. Our world does need it, so we should speed it. In fact, our world desperately needs it. And so we should speed it. We should not only long for it, as someone who's got a, something out of joint longs for it to be set right. So we long for it. But not only that, we should hasten it, speed it. How do we do that? Well, first I want to tell you, I want to tell you three things that we need to do with this. If, if we're to long for judgment and speed it's coming, there's at least three things we should do. The first two are just the natural response we should have to a desire for God to come set things right. And the third one is what we do to actually speed its coming. The first thing we need to do in response to this, just practically speaking, is we need to work on what's broken inside of us. Because each of us have something that's still not quite right in us. 
And it won't be perfectly right until Christ returns and sets everything right. But, I mean, the response to the gospel is repentance. And repentance is about turning from our old way of life to a new way of life. Sometimes the scripture talks about sanctification. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life to put to death the old ways of living. The worldly ways of living that aren't godly, that aren't Jesus' way. And so, I don't know what it is for you, but I know you've got something. I don't know if it's envy or greed. I don't know if you've got an unhealthy obsession with food or you've got a lust problem or an anger problem. I don't know what your problem is. I just know that you, like me, we've got problems. And we need to address those with the help of the Holy Spirit in our life. I mean, it's just a natural response to longing for Christ to come set things right. If, if things are broken and out of place, we need to do what we can in this, time, in this time, in these last days, to begin setting things right by the Holy Spirit's help. And the second way we need to do, the second response is not only what's in us, but what's broken in the world. We need to work at setting right what's broken in the world. And yeah, there's problems in the world that, that seem so insurmountable to us. Like, what could we do that would really make a difference? And yet, that does not let us off the hook of doing something. We can't, I mean, this is just one example that we could give of many, but we've talked a lot about human trafficking and, and how that's not just some issue overseas somewhere, but in our own backyard, it's an issue. And so we've partnered, we've begun to partner with, with a group right across town, right in town for, from, uh, with us, and right in our community called Project 41. And we partner with them with finances. People take meals over there. We've been, you know, trying, some of the Sunday school classes have been trying to get some of their last things that they need over at their new housing uh, for these ladies that have been rescued out of human trafficking. And so, yeah, we've got we've to do something. And that may be something small. And maybe they're only able to rescue a few but we've got to do something. I, I think it's like this. We, in front of our house, we've got a few little bulbs that we planted. They're called snow crocuses, which is kind of funny because we don't get snow hardly here in Louisiana. But that's what they're called. They're called snow crocuses. And they're one of the first things to bloom. I mean, almost before springtime even comes, they pop up out of the ground, just a tiny little bloom. They don't shoot up very far. They're not spectacular. But they're just a small, pretty little bloom that just pops out of the ground before anything else. And even though it's not much, it's a sign. It's a sign that something more is coming. It's a sign that, you know, I may not be a very big flower, but I'm just here to tell you that there's going to be an amazing thing that takes place where green is going to cover all the trees and leaves are going to come out and flowers are going to bloom and it's going to be incredible. And, and we, in our lives and in our world as Christ followers, we're, I think we're called to be kind of like a snow crocus. We're announcing, look, we may not be able to do much, but we can do something. And this something is to point to and say that there's a spring coming. That there's a day when our king is going to return as judge and he's going to set everything that's wrong right. 
So we need to fix what's broken in us and we need to fix what's broken in the world to the best of our ability, to the most that we can. And then to, to actually speed his coming, to hasten his coming, we need to tell someone about Jesus. Remember what we said at the beginning, that our response to bad news should be a longing for judgment. And hopefully that makes more sense now. And if we long for judgment... If we long for Christ to come and set things right, then if we want to hurry that up, if we want to speed its coming, as Scripture tells us to, then we need to tell someone about Jesus. In that same Second Peter chapter 3, we read that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Why is Jesus holding off on coming? Because he longs for everyone to have a chance to come to repentance. He wants everyone to repent. He wants everyone to believe. He wants everyone to follow him. Jesus himself said in, in Matthew 24, verse 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus doesn't tell us much about when this is going to happen. In fact, he says, on the contrary, he says, I don't even know when it's going to happen. It's just the Father that knows. So anytime you hear someone that's predicting the time of, of the end of the world or whatever, you just have a good laugh and move on about your business. <laughs> All right, but he does say this. That before the end will come, the gospel will be preached throughout the nations. And he gave us the Great Commission, did he not? He gave us the church's mission, what we're supposed to be doing. Our king is waiting to return because he longs for everyone to come to repentance. He's given us this mission. So when we give to Faith Promise, when we give to support missionaries around the world, when we, uh, well, when we tell someone about Jesus... When we're, when we're inviting them to church because we know they need to hear the gospel, these actions are speeding, they're hastening the judgment. And so when we confront or are confronted by bad news, we should long for judgment. And if we long for judgment, we should tell someone about Jesus. And the thing about telling someone about Jesus, you don't have to have a master's degree in gospel presentation to tell someone about Jesus. I mean, just look for openings in your everyday conversations. If you, if you encounter someone who, you know, they feel like, oh, well, I'm just not a churchy person. I feel like they're all hypocrites. Well, yeah, Jesus didn't like hypocrites either. Did you know that? <laughs> he had big problems with hypocrites. Would you like to know more about Jesus? Someone says, oh, you know, I'm too bad to ever go to church. I've done too much. Well, did you know that's exactly the sort of people Jesus said he came for? Not for the people that have it together, but for the people that could never get it together. Well, you know, if you're a good person, then you'll be all right. Well, I guess that depends on your definition of, of what a good person is, right? Because... I mean, of course, Jesus' definition seemed to be not only that you love other people, but also how you love God. 
oh, well, you know, all religions, you know, it doesn't really matter what you believe. It kind of all points to the same place, right? Uh, I don't know. Jesus said that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and that the only way to the Father was through him. That's not something that Christians made up to be exclusive or something. That's just what Jesus said, and we're Jesus' followers, so we're just taking him at his word on that one. Would you like to know more about Jesus? Invite someone to church. I mean, next week is a, is a great week. We're going to talk about the, the reclaiming the true Christian hope. Uh, and it's September 18th. September 18th is going to kick off a, a new series, How to Be a Christian in America. It's a little intimidating to me, but I think it's going to be really practical in a day and time where, man, a lot of us look around at America and we, and we scratch our heads and we wonder, you know, how do we vote? How do we, how do we live in this culture that seems so foreign in so many ways? So invite them. And in all these things that we do, we're speeding its coming. The world needs judgment, so we speed judgment. I want to ask you to turn to the very end of your Bible. I mean, literally, the very last page, the very last chapter of Scripture. And don't worry, I'm not starting in on a new sermon. This is how we're going to, this is how we're going to conclude today. How does the Bible end? How does it conclude? It concludes with the book of Revelation. But how does the book of Revelation conclude? Revelation 22, verse 17. The Spirit and the Bride, the church, say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. It's the invitation. It's the telling someone about Jesus that hastens the coming of Christ. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. It's a warm, welcoming invitation. And church, if we aren't issuing a warm, friendly, welcoming invitation to come, then what are we doing? And verse 20, he who testifies to these things, speaking of Jesus, says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. This, this at the end of all scripture is the cry of the Christian heart. When we see our world that's so broken, when we see our lives and our families that are so broken, our response is not, oh Lord, take me home, get me out of here. No, our response is come, Lord Jesus, come. Come and set it right, come our King, come, good and righteous judge, come and set what is broken to rights so that healing can take place. We so desperately need it. All of creation is longing and groaning for it. Come, Lord Jesus. So this is our prayer. Would you pray with me? Father, oh Father, thank you for creating
We're so sorry for the brokenness that we caused in your good creation. Holy Spirit, help us to set things right the best we can. Help us to tell people about Jesus and so speed your coming even while we cry out from our heart, come, Lord Jesus, come. We so desperately need you. We pray it in his name. Amen.